Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, a community of math teacher educators learning to teach math teachers better. I'm your co-host, Dusty Jones, and joining me is co-host Joel Amadon. Joel, how are you doing? Not too bad, Dusty. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting. This is great. Yeah, excited. I'm excited because today we're talking with Dr. Sam Otten. Sam is an associate professor, uh, Lois Knowles faculty fellow, and department chair of learning, teaching, and curriculum at my alma mater, the University of Missouri. Uh, today we're talking with Sam for a number of reasons, including his work on the Math Ed podcast, his research on flipped mathematics instruction, and how these impact uh, mathematics teacher education. Welcome, Sam. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Could you take a minute to introduce yourself uh, beyond what we've already shared? What did we miss? Oh, sure. Well, I think you had a good recap of my roles here at the University of Missouri. I've been here 11 years now, going to my 12th year. I guess I could add that before Missouri, I did grow up and did my education in Michigan. So I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and I went to Grand Valley State, had some great math educators there. And then I did my grad school at Michigan State University, had great math educators there. Um, and my family still lives up in Michigan. Although, of course, my immediate family is here in Missouri. Uh, my wife's a teacher and um, we have four children who are all growing and getting active and involved. Um, and I mentioned my wife's a teacher, but also I actually have a lot of teachers and educators in my family. So my wife, my mom, my grandma, my brother, my, my brother-in-law, my mother-in-law, like just a lot of educators of various types all around. So I feel kind of at home talking about schools and talking about learning and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm guessing not just in math, but like all sorts of subjects and, and, yep. and grade levels and things like that. Yeah. Some in math, some in elementary grade levels, some in special education. Okay, great. Um, so the first question, how did you get your start in teaching math teachers? And then why did you do that? Well, the start was definitely as part of an assistantship at Michigan State. So I was there in grad school. And then as part of getting funding for my doc program, I got involved in doing some of the content courses, some of the pedagogy courses for people who were becoming math teachers or teachers of mathematics. Uh, and I will say, you know, for me, it was it started in grad school, but then it went into several years of faculty for me to really form my identity as a teacher educator. Mm. Because I didn't come at it wanting to be a teacher educator. You know, some people come to get their PhD because they want to be a leader in training the next generation of teachers or with working with that community and making an impact by shaping future teachers. That was not how I came to the doc program or, or came to like higher ed and, and mathematics uh, education. I was really wanting to be a math teacher directly. And then uh, I kind of took a detour doing some pure mathematics and some mathematical research and kind of forming an identity as a mathematician going along with being a math teacher. And then where I really went in grad school and then in my first few years as faculty member was just having an identity as a math ed researcher. And that was mm -hmm. really what I took up as my identity was, all right, let's ask some questions. Let's get some data. Let's investigate some of the phenomenon that's around math teaching and learning. Um, and as I got my faculty position, of course, part of my role was to be a math teacher educator. So I was, you know, working, especially at the start in the middle and secondary teacher preparation program. Mm -hmm. um, so then I just started to bring teacher educator in as part of my identity, um, go to some AMTE conferences. Sometimes it, you know, it wasn't my home base when I started, but I got a little bit more comfortable there talking about mm -hmm. teacher education. 
And then over the years, I, you know, I took more of a leadership role in some of the teacher education stuff uh, in our programs here at the University of Missouri. And then even my research questions started to shift towards uh, preparing, but also working with teachers in practice and continuing their education and their learning, trying to support that. So I would say now, uh, you know, 15, 16 years into this, I definitely do have teacher educator as one of my identities, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't what drove me at the start. Yeah, that that's interesting. I remember uh, being an, a doctoral student and thinking, you know, what what area am, am I going to go into? And I had a similar thought that I thought I needed to be a math ed researcher. Uh, I just thought I needed to be. That's just what I thought I wanted to do. And but I kept falling into places where I was really interested in the teacher education aspect. Uh, so that's interesting to hear um, your your journey to this uh, to this identity. That's great. And and I don't think you're saying you've given up any of those other uh, sorts uh, of identities as well. Yeah. Always yeah. an additive process. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> what was the best advice you received when you started teaching math teachers? Yeah, I, I uh, thought about this question and I didn't really come up with like words of advice, but I definitely came up with a couple things that were influential as I was getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, one was back at Michigan State. So Mike Steele was at Michigan State at the time. Um, and he was heading up our secondary teacher preparation program. And one thing I really noticed from him and took from him was purposefully making space for the pre-service or the prospective teachers to reflect on their field. Like they were having field experiences, then they're coming to campus for methods courses. And Mike dedicated the whole first portion of every class to let's talk about field. What have people noticed? Let's bring some things out for discussion. And so he kind of gave over that time to the students to bring things to the table and to, you know, say, I've been pondering this and then having their peers react to it. And then Mike will kind of chime in or ask a question to sort of probe into it further. Mm-hmm. And so for me, just noticing, oh, he's putting that up front and center and it's a dedicated amount of time every single class session. Uh, so I definitely took that from him as like, okay, take those field connections seriously. Don't kind of bust the door down with, I've got something planned for today. Let me start to really, you know, share. No, it's like, no, let the students actually bring some things that are on their mind. So um, that was definitely something that was impactful to me. Um, and then here, at, when I got to the University of Missouri, um, Barbara Rees was very influential in kind of helping me get started. And then James Tarr was leading uh, the secondary teacher preparation program here at the University of Missouri. And one thing I remember from them, I can't remember exactly, you know, who said it or where it came from, but definitely an idea I took from them at the start was when I'm thinking about the methods courses for prospective teachers, that it's okay to focus on a few big ideas and not to feel like you have to cover a lot of different topics or cram a lot of different things into the semester. Mm-hmm. Um, at Missouri, we have the luxury of having three semesters of teaching methods, which is really nice. Oh, wow. But even with that, you can start jamming stuff in there. You can start wanting to cover so many different, oh, this reading would be good. This idea would be good. Oh, we should do this activity. Um, and Barbara and James just having that wisdom of saying, you can scale back and you can really spend some time with a few big ideas rather than trying to get through a lot of important ideas. That's really good to hear, I think, especially because as time goes on, there's only more and more topics that that are important enough to add and, and spend time discussing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess I, it, I also kind of realized with both of my pieces of advice that I've kind of taken, they both sort of have to do with the timing or the pacing mm-hmm. like of setting up that that course experience. 
And they both kind of involve reining yourself back, like, like make sure you <laughs> right. keep space for those field conversations and then make sure you let the big ideas breathe and you don't sort of crowd them yeah. with too much stuff. That's great. I feel like uh, I shouldn't let my students hear this podcast episode because if they did, <laughs> they'd be like, Amazon, you hear that? Don't stop jamming things in to this <laughs> class. Give us time to to process. Yeah. No, but like you're, you're, you you just said you have three classes, but like yeah, it's so much space. Like oh, we can do this, we can do this. Versus like yeah, scale back. What is it? What are the big ideas of Estin? I mean, I'm wrote that down, highlighted, capitalized, whatever. <laughs> that's yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, one newer question we've been asking this season is, uh, what's a word or a phrase or a quote or or some some saying uh, that that translates well in audio format. Uh, that helps you center your work, uh, the work you do in teaching mathematics teachers? Yeah, I try. So there's definitely an idea that has been guiding me recently. Um, and so I tried to put it into a phrase, although it's not like I have it on a poster or anything like that. Okay. But um, here's how I tried to phrase it for this. Most prospective teachers have come from typical classrooms and they will go to typical school settings, kind of kind of by definition definition mm -hmm. of typicality. It's like they've probably come from typical kinds of schools. They're probably going to get hired into typical kinds of schools. And so I think it's worthwhile to focus on improvements in conventional instruction, not just try to replace conventional instruction or present a totally new vision of math instruction. So that's that's this kind of to me like recognizing the prevalence of conventional instruction, recognizing the prevalence of typical class settings, typical school contexts, that sort of thing. I've really over the years come to respect the power of that and then realizing maybe we just need to work within that constraint. Mm -hmm. um, because when I was an undergrad, when I was a grad student, when I was starting out at faculty, reading things about, you know, teacher education a lot of times it felt like it started with this new vision of instruction. Like here's a new way of thinking about math pedagogy. Uh, a lot of the documents will even start with like yeah, a vision. Imagine this kind of classroom where these discussions are happening in student explorations and all that stuff. And over the years, I just realized, wow, we sort of have a tendency to always start with that new vision. Uh, but then I feel like it's actually coming at the prospective teachers with something new that doesn't match their experience. Mm -hmm. And then we're trying to like, really move them over to our side of things. And I feel like, I don't think that's what we would tell the teachers to do with students. I don't think we would tell the students, go to your students and present them with something totally foreign, totally unfamiliar, very different from their own experience. And then just try to win them over and try to like convince them that they have to come to your way of seeing it or your way of mm -hmm. doing it. I feel like what we would tell teachers with students is to like, listen to your students. What, what have they experienced? What are their ideas? What are their, what are mm -hmm. their expectations? And then try to build from those. So for me, that's now like if I was starting over and building like a teacher ed program from scratch, I don't think I would present an alternative reform oriented vision of math instruction at all. Well, I shouldn't say I wouldn't present it at the start. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I present it in the middle and I'm I maybe would present it at the end, but I'm not even sure about that. For me, I'm guided more by this. Let's build on what they have experienced. Let's build on what their vision of te math teaching is. And let's try to shape it with our expertise. Let's try to shape it and improve it, mm -hmm. but still building from what they're coming from, which might be quite conventional. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, that goes along with your idea of, you know, meeting your students 
and and where they are and and where they come from. I mean, it, it would be hard to you know present this vision of somewhere else where, but we don't know we don't know how to get there from here. From where you are, there's this you know gap. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, like a canyon or something, and we want to be over there, but we're over here. Uh, we can just imagine ourselves over there. But when you get that job in the typical classroom, which is very similar to where you came from, what do you do? Um, how do you realize that? Yeah. Sam, was that a, a did, when you started talking, was that a topic of a poster that you and I believe Charles Munter had at yeah, what, yeah. PMNA and Clem, at Clemson? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Would not agree. Uh, what was uh, that? South Carolina one, probably. South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Was that? Uh, I remember that, right? Yes, like you two standing in front of a poster. It was like it was like a a live like debate poster. Yeah, like, yeah, you've got it. So, so Chuck and I, uh, really, our home is your team. But Chuck and I, you know, have kind of been having this conversation for years, and we we took it to PMNA. Our poster, we just made our poster like a dividing line, and like one side <laughs> was on the left, one side was on the right, and we stood there, and then we yeah. actually like debated it in front of the poster. Yeah. Um, I mean, I- I talk about that as like, like, Hey, like pushing on the, you know, the medium and, and stuff like that. And like, Hey, I, this was the amazing. Cause there's like, you went and like, there it is. There's the debate right in yep. front of it. Like, and it's, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And it's <laughs> been a very rich debate and I've, I've kind of shifted, you know? So I was, yeah. I was kind of more like, Oh yeah, we should pr- promote the reform way of teaching. I mean, I'm still in favor of that. So, so what I would say is if there's a teacher ed program that, that is consistently graduating teachers like 90% of which uh, go to their school and wherever they end up in their school, they're able to do inquiry-based lessons. They're able to have rich discussions with students. They empower their students in an inclusive way. If there's a teacher ed program that is achieving that at like a 90% level, then I applaud them and be like, let's learn from you. Let's try to do it. Um, But in my experience and from the teacher ed programs that I've seen and talked to about this, I've been talking to people about it for years. I'm not hearing people that are saying, oh, yeah, we have 90% success of people enacting reform-oriented instruction once they get out into the regular schools. Um, Usually what I hear is like they've had a few success stories that they're very proud of, but then a lot that revert to conventional instruction and then uh, some that feel guilty because they're not doing reform instruction and they're like letting their professors down because I'm just, you know, teaching from this textbook and going like the rest of the school Mm is. So for me, I'm like, okay, another approach is to try to graduate 90% of people that are doing better than average, like conventional math instruction. And I would actually take that as a win. If we're doing better than average, if we're doing, and if we're avoiding the most harmful kinds of math instruction, like there, to speak bluntly, there's some kinds of math instruction that is harmful to students that excludes people's ideas, that shuts them down, that turns them off. So if we can at least avoid those harmful kinds of teaching and make them a little bit better, where it's like, all right, we're doing a little bit more to, to draw on students' ideas or a little bit more to build some connectual connections, uh, I would take that as a win, even though it maybe feels like yeah. more modest or it feels mm-hmm. like a withdrawal from the reform-oriented NCTM champion kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe this is related, and I think you've touched on this, but what advice would you give someone who's starting out and teaching math teachers? Yeah. So my advice would be, don't listen to me. Uh, (laughs) With everything I just said before, I know that that's not for everybody. I just am trying to make a little bit of space in our field that, Hey, maybe some people that are taking this, what Sandra DeRajo, who's working with me on some of this um, 
we're, we're calling incremental approach. Amber Kendall has also been talking to us about mm -hmm. it. The incremental approach doesn't have to be for everybody, but I do think that our field would benefit from making some space for an incremental approach. So if I'm talking to somebody new, don't listen to me. NCTM has a lot more institutional wisdom than I do and stuff. Um, what I would say, though, is they should build on prospective teachers' experiences. So I, I do think okay. that I can say. Don't ignore their experience, which might be in a conventional classroom, and don't try to just force your way of seeing things onto them. You should try to build with the experience that they have had and the vision that they are coming with for what it means to teach math. I do think you should build from that vision. You shouldn't just try to replace it with your vision. Um, I also think some advice I would have for somebody starting out is um, don't listen to me. Listen to math teacher educators, listen to this podcast, listen to the organizations, but don't only listen to the professional organizations or the, you know, the, the mm. professional organizations also listen to teachers um, like teachers in the school. They have thoughts about what should be in a methods class, or they have thoughts about what's important to emphasize in a program that's preparing teachers. Um, and I think that should actually be valued right along with the AMTE guidelines or whatever we say on this podcast, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Sean Yee and I did a survey of methods instructors at the secondary level, like secondary math teacher educators. Mm -hmm. We did a survey of like what they think is most important to put into those methods courses. But then we turned around and we did a survey of practicing teachers and we asked them the same question, like what should be in those math teaching methods courses? And the two groups didn't, they agreed on some stuff, but they disagreed on other stuff. And I think if you're starting out in teacher ed, you should actually listen to both of those groups. Mm -hmm. um, and Sean, Yee and I published those results in like an AMTE connections uh, newsletter. I can share it if people are interested. Yeah. We'll but be sure to also... include it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, basically for me, it's a little bit of humility amongst the teacher ed community that we might not have all the answers. Like, mm -hmm. We have our perspective. We have thought about things. We've tried them out. So that's one important voice, but we should also have the humility to recognize teachers may have a different point of view. And actually, maybe we should listen to them sometimes, not just our own little scholarly bubble. Yeah, I agree. I think maybe all professions would benefit from it, but definitely in education, I think having some humility about our profession, the fact that we might not have all of the answers um, I mean, that's part of what research is about, you know, in, in trying to find, uh, you know, pose some interesting questions and, and find what uh, what we can out about the world. So, yeah, that's great. And along those same lines, in terms of like listening to the teacher education space, the kind of university space, but also listening to teachers from the field, um, I would encourage a new teacher educator to think carefully about the field and the methods and how those are integrated, how they're connected. It's a very common topic of discussion amongst teacher educators is like, how's your field? How is it aligning with your methods course? You know, how is that going? And then people trying to talk about finding the right field placements or finding the right school settings that are working well in sync, like with the methods course. One thing I would say to a new teacher educator, though, is that it's easier to modify what you're doing in your methods class than it is to modify the whole systems and structures of the field. Mm -hmm. So I, I see a lot of people that are trying to find the perfect field placement or find the right host teacher or find the right school. Um, and that's fine to do some of that vetting, do some of that looking. But if there's a misalignment between what they're seeing in field or what they're hearing from the host teachers and what's happening to methods, 
I can fix that alignment pretty quickly by just changing my methods course. Whereas to change the field side of thing, I feel like is like a 20 year endeavor that I don't know if it will ever work. Yeah. We've, we've been, some people have been working on that, you know, <laughs> for a while. Um, I think the fields moved. I, I don't know if it's where it was aimed at. Oh, I have, I have one more piece of advice too, um, which is to have fun, like ha- have fun in your class, keep a space for some humor, um, that's just important for building community, but also important for just showing that when we're doing math and when we're teaching math, we can actually try to bring some some real joy into it. It doesn't need to be like a slog. It doesn't need to be like this huge weight that lays on us. I think having yeah. fun and makes everything better. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sam, how do you set boundaries and priorities to get the right things done and still enjoy your life? There we go. Yeah. So there we go. Enjoyment. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you asked this question because I I do think it's really important to protect personal time, um, whether it's personal hobbies, just rest, uh, whether it's family connections, whatever. Um, For me, what I've found works is to really set a clock for work. So like for me, it's around 830 to five. And I try to really work and be efficient while I'm at work. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try not to waste time during that 8:30 to five. I'm going to try to really be efficient with what I'm doing, but then I pretty much want to unplug and check out for the evenings and for the weekends. Um, for me, it's a lot of family stuff with the four kids and mm-hmm. everything going on, but it, it could also just be personal rest and recuperation or hobbies or whatever. Um, so for me, I try to work diligently while I'm here. And then I try to stop when I'm not here. Uh, and what I've really liked about our department is that our department, our colleagues and stuff, we're all kind of supportive of that same idea of like, let's protect each other's weekends. Let's protect, protect each other's evenings. Uh, And that's nice to have that kind of culture in the department. Um, I will say though, sometimes at home, if I'm like watching a sporting event or maybe a movie or something, I might do some non-cognitively demanding work. So I might put a few things into a grade book, or I might edit a podcast episode. There's Mm -hmm. a few things that don't take, they're not a heavy lift cognitively. And I'll sometimes do those on the couch at home. But other than that, I really try to close the computer and just be at home when I'm at home. And I do think that's really important. Yeah. You're not, you're not figuring out the teaching schedule or uh, grant budget or anything like that. Nope, no, no, pretty home. much. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much nothing else in evenings mm-hmm. and weekends other than, yeah, maybe just filing something away that's, or deleting a few emails or something like that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love that you're saying this as a department chair. Too. Yeah. I mean, that's, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah and I know th- I've, I've been trying to emphasize it like as department chair um, yeah. well, and leadership from the top. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And I, having, served as department chair for a year uh, and and change, I know that um, you just have to leave it there. It's not like it goes away. Um, right. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you're able to do that. And um, I'm sure it's helping. I'm sure if you were not doing that, things would not be as good as they might be with your family or with your life in general. Yeah. Yeah. On the department chair side, like when I'm talking to faculty, I say like, my goal is not just for your productivity, or my goal is not just for your success. My goal is for your long-term success, like mm-hmm. that you're working in a way that's sustainable for 10 or 15 years. And for me, if you want it to be long-term success and sustainability, it means you're also having time off. You're also with your family. You're also having hobbies. You can you can turn off work. And I feel yeah. like that's more sustainable for the long term. Yeah. 
Well, Sam, I one of the things that I want to talk to you about is the Math Ed podcast. So you started that, I think, in 2012, so yep. over 10 years ago. Uh, can you share a bit about uh, the genesis of that podcast? And then also, um, who do you think should listen to the Math Ed podcast? Yeah. Um, you know, 10, yeah, 10, it was 2012. There were podcasts around at that time, although they were not nearly as popular or as ubiquitous as they are now, but they were around. And so when I was at Michigan State, I refused to pay for the student parking because I thought it was too expensive. <laughs> so I walked I walked to everything my first few years, and then I moved a little farther out, and I took the city bus every day for all my grad school stuff. So as I was commuting to campus, I would listen to podcasts, uh, you know, on, on some earbuds on the bus. But I was listening to like, you know, comedy podcasts or sports podcasts or politics podcasts or like comic book podcasts. So I was listening to all this other stuff, which is which could be good for like work, work life balance. You know, you don't have to work all the time. Mm -hmm. But I was in grad school and I was thinking like, what if there was a math ed podcast and I could actually be doing a little bit of work just while I'm sitting on the bus or walking to campus? Um, but one didn't really exist at that time. Um, the other piece. So that was, you know kind of just this idea of it. it would be nice to listen to some math ed stuff while I'm doing this. But there was another piece to it that kind of made it all click. When I was at Michigan State, several times, um, a professor would have us read an article and they would have the author of the article actually call into the class. So this was mm -hmm. before Zoom, but we it would usually be an actual audio phone call. But there would be, wow, we just read this article and now we can ask questions to the author and the author can tell us a little bit of stories about like where that article came from and, and that sort of thing. And what I noticed when I was in grad school was I noticed that those articles where the author called in, I remembered like every single one of them. Mm -hmm. and, and yet I read dozens of other articles and I remembered maybe 30% of them or 40% of them, you know, like uh, strong memories. But the ones where they called in, for some reason, it just helped the article come to, to come to life. It put a voice to the ideas. It just helped me really um, connect it in my mind a lot stronger. So I put both of those ideas together, which is like, okay, it'd be nice to have a math ed podcast. Maybe I could just recreate those call-ins with the author, have them describe an article, and maybe that will make the article come alive and be memorable um, to the to the field. Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. know how many people were going to actually listen to it, but that was the kind of concept. And um at first, I thought about having a little bit of like math ed news and then a guest that I would interview about their research. But I think wisely, I didn't do the news thing because that would just become stale or it'd become expired, you know, like mm -hmm. afterward. But the, the interviewing somebody about a study, the nice thing is people are still downloading episodes from like years ago. Like people will say, oh, yeah, I just listened to that episode from 2017. <laughs> and so because I did focus on them talking about their research, it's something that can be downloaded from the past catalog. Um, so yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a good decision. Um, and it also means I can have people back more than, more than once. Cause I could talk to them about this article and then a couple years later, I could talk to them about a different article. So it's yeah. kind of nice that way too. Um, I wasn't sure how many people were going to listen to it, but pretty quickly it started getting a few hundred downloads and I'm like, oh, cool. There's actually people listening to it. That was already like more than I expected. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but then just keeping at it, keeping at it over the years, um, it's now grown, grown to like a few thousand people that listen to it, which has been really rewarding. And then just hearing from people that say, oh, yeah, I listened to it or, you know, it's been great hearing the feedback in terms of who should listen to it. I mean, I'm, I'm fine for anybody to listen to it. Part of the the goal that I had was to have it be freely available and that the back catalog is always available and it's worldwide. 
and I'm trying to keep it that way. I've always done it just myself. I've paid out of pocket. Sometimes people have given donations, but there's no like funding behind it. It's just, I've been doing it on my own, but I've always been committed to having it free and mm-hmm. keeping all the past episodes available. Um, I definitely knew that or wanted researchers to listen to it. Like the people producing this research, the reading the research journals, like they can hear from other researchers. Um, and I've tried to keep the podcast sort of focused on the research side of things. Um, just, just to have a lane, you know, I felt like there's yeah. so much in math ed. I'm, I'm glad you guys are here to pick up some other lanes. Um, uh, but I feel like my lane is really like empirical data talking about research findings and that sort of thing. Um, so I knew researchers hoped researchers would listen to it. Uh, I figured grad students might listen to it when I started that I was just coming out of grad school. I'm like, Oh yeah, this would be beneficial to me to hear people's real voice and hear them talking about the studies. Um, And then I was happy to find that teachers also listen to it. I think because it's conversational, it's not as intimidating uh, or lengthy as a 40 page research article Mm -hmm. or something. And then also the fact that it's free makes where teachers can just download and listen to it. They don't have to worry about journal subscription or library access or anything like that. So for me, those are always the ones I think of researchers, grad students, teachers. I have also heard some happy stories from people about non-educators listening to it so sometimes a guest will come on this has happened multiple times where they'll say like my sister listened to the episode and we had a good conversation or like my parents listened to the episode and now they know a little bit about my research and some of them will say like this is the first time my family has actually like engaged with my research they've never read the books or read the articles but they listen to the podcast yeah that's cool that's cool i i um I'm one of the thousands of people, I guess, that listen to those and and I'm always excited when I see a new one pop up on my thanks. feed. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. And so, uh, so yeah, I I could answer this question myself, but I thought, well, I just, I'll ask Sam, what does he, <laughs> who does he think should listen to it? So people who listen to our podcast, I'd say, you know, take a, take a look over, we'll put a link uh, to the Math Ed podcast in our show notes. It's mathedpodcast.com. It's not... <laughs> Uh, not yeah. hard as we used yeah. to say all one word um, <laughs> yeah. but we don't have right. to anymore with URLs and Sam I'd say like some of the other episodes that you had too where you interviewed like some of the legends in in math education yeah like, you know like Megan Franke and and Randy Phillip and uh, Jeremy Kilpatrick Tom, Jeremy Kilpatrick Tom Carpenter where you learned yeah. that Tom Carpenter wanted to be a point guard for the Golden State Warriors <laughs> I believe at the time it was <laughs> Yeah, those are fun too. So that was just an idea that came up later was like, okay, I have an actual audience that like a feed for this podcast and then realizing still keeping it on research, but talking about somebody's kind of research trajectory across their career. Yeah, those are some of my favorite episodes as well. And I have I have a big one uh, lined up for this winter. So nice. um, stay yeah, tuned. I'll be um, yeah, happy to add that one to the list of the kind of career retrospectives. Exciting. Well, I'll say because I went to Wisconsin and just hearing about you know, you heard like echoes or you go into a, a room and you see like, Hey, there's this person's, you know, like Jim Hebert's dissertation right on the, you know, <laughs> on the yeah. shelf here or something like that. And then getting a chance to hear like some of the stories about the work that was being done, like, yeah. you know, like you've captured and, and now that that's available, like you get to hear some of those things about the, the kind of yeah. the legacies that people left, especially now that, you know, like, Jeremy Kilpatrick has passed and Tom Carpenter has yeah. passed and that that's still there. And I, I yeah, we had that. Uh, 
Uh, so Susan Empson helped me also with Liz Fenema. That was a really good one to get yeah. on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenda Lappin has some good stories from Connected oh, Math. Sure. And oh, like, yeah. you know, Connected Math is still around, still being mm-hmm. used. And so to hear like, how did that start? What's the what's the origin right. story for that? It's cool. Yeah. So recently in your own work, Sam, you've been examining flipped mathematics instruction, especially in algebra classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you defining a flipped classroom and... Uh, what are some key takeaways for math teacher educators? Yeah. Yeah. Zandra DiRajo and I, uh, Ruby Ellis and others, but we've, you know, been working on flipped instruction for quite a few years and we started before the pandemic. So we were kind of in the right spot at the right, <laughs> right. time to think about instructional videos and stuff. For us, we we think about flipped instruction in relation to conventional unflipped instruction. We also think about flipped instruction in relation to fully online instruction. So flipped in the first sense, it's, it's, uh, a le- we do it at the lesson level. So a lesson is flipped if the homework for that lesson is not problems and exercises. Okay. Uh, usually it's a video homework, like watch this video, that's your homework. But it could be read this thing. It could be um, listen to this podcast, like anything that's more like they consume something for their homework instead of answering problems or exercises, then we call that flipping. Um, but also we specify that flipped instruction or flipped lesson does have a class component. There is a time in the lesson where the teacher is getting together with the students. And that's to distinguish it from like fully online teaching. Okay. Because both the fully online teaching and the flipped can both have an instructional video, but the presence of the instructional video, it still matters. Well, what else do you do in the lesson? Do you get together with the students and do you talk about the video? Do you try some things together in the room? Um, So those are kind of the important definitional features for us. We've, and you asked about kind of some key key takeaways of the work. I'd say we have key takeaways around the videos and then we have key takeaways around like what happens in the rest of the lesson. Okay. Uh, with regard to the videos, what we found, and this kind of confirms other research from multimedia learning and stuff, is the videos do not need to be long. And in fact, they probably should not be long. Shorter videos are, are better. Um, also, the videos don't need to be too fancy. In fact, putting all kinds of sounds, sound effects and graphics that float across the screen, that stuff's actually distracting and it's better Mm. to kind of get rid of the distracting, the non-essential sorts of video elements. Um, And then the one thing we came as a team to really like, as we were looking at so many algebra videos, they do a very good job of introducing the topic of the video, but they do not do a good job of motivating the topic for the video. Okay. So they'll say, this video is about solving systems of equations. It's like, okay, we got the topic, but like, what is, what are we going to be able to do in this video that we couldn't before? What, you know, what's my reason for wanting to learn this? Um, and we felt like those don't have to be long. They don't have to be fancy, but we felt like if there was a motivation at the start of the video, that that might be more effective than just stating the topic. Mm-hmm. Um And then the other thing we talk to teachers and stuff is part of the study and teachers very often want to make the videos. They feel like they're, they're doing their job. If they're the one making the videos Um, in looking at the data and thinking about it for years, we were not totally convinced that the teacher has to make all the videos themselves. We understand that the teacher wants to, and maybe that's just important for them to feel good about it. And maybe for the parents and the students to recognize the teacher in the video. But in terms of the learning that can come from it, we felt like a lot of times the teacher might save time and effort by using some videos that are already there. Um, so we wanted to sort of give permission to teachers that like, you know what, if it's hard technology wise, if it's hard 
in terms of the time commitment for you to make all these videos, we'll give you permission to, you don't have to do that. You can find mm -hmm. some videos that already exist, or definitely you can reuse videos from year to year. Like, don't feel like you have to remake all these videos every year. Um, so we wanted to just kind of lighten teachers load a little bit um, on that regard. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit on the video side of things. Okay. Yeah. Um, now beyond the videos, um, so that's about the videos, but actually overall, we didn't have strong evidence that the videos matter that much. Okay. So, okay. So even though we've published <laughs> things on the videos and there's all this work on videos, um, it actually seemed to like, yeah, I, sh I should say having a video might matter versus like not having a video. But like getting the perfect video is kind of a fool's errand. Like it's a wild goose chase. It's like, no, just have a video. It's probably going to be fine. Let's actually look at what you do in class time. Let's then so, actually so look at what. That's more important, I guess. Yeah, I think I'd be curious. I think Xandra would say the same thing that um, once you've got the video, fine, check. That's that's fine. It's not worth it to stress and pour over the exact phrasing of the video and the exact editing and like, 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 you know what, you got a video, it's probably fine. Okay. What does seem to matter more is what do you do with the students from the video or connected to the video or with your class time? Um, it does seem valuable to have class time for students to work like while the teacher's in the room. Um, that does seem to be important. So it's like, okay, you had the video, hopefully the students watched it. But when they come back to class, let's actually give the students some time to dig in into some some problems like let's have them try some of it out the teacher can be there to respond or they can work with with each other that seems to matter more than like the exact perfect video for example okay um we did find overall we looked at 47 algebra classes and like 20 some of them were flipped 20 some of them were non-flipped we tried to make them comparable overall we did find that the positive learning results were on the flip side um so we did a procedural measure a conceptual measure um the procedural was kind of equal on the learning outcomes, but the conceptual actually favored the flipped group a little bit. Now that's correlational. Um, it's it's definitely not causal because these flip teachers were choosing to flip. And so they were choosing to try something innovative. They were willing to put in the time to make a shift to flipping. Like, so it's not a random sample of teachers mm -hmm. who are the ones that are flipping. It's also not a random sample of their contexts if they felt like they were in a context to try the flipping. So the positive flipped results are not necessarily causal. Um, but other literature is also finding positive results for flipping. And so, but we, Xandra and I would hypothesize, we weren't able to like, you know, answer this definitively, um, but we would hypothesize that the benefit of the flipping is because of it freeing up some class time. And then what the teacher does with that class time. It's not because the videos are like a magic, uh, a silver bullet to like mm -hmm. solve the the learning problem. So for, for math teacher educators, I can see a couple of, uh, ways to think about this. One is thinking about my own classes that I'm teaching, you know, is there some benefit to trying to flip that? And, and maybe some of your work um, could, could inform that. But then the other thing is how am I preparing my pr prospective teachers uh, to do flipped instruction? Do you have, what, what, uh, what, what words do you have toward those yeah. topics? Yeah. I mean, I do think for, new teachers, I do think it's good for them to be somewhat aware of instructional videos. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to give them at least a little bit of these guidance that kind of like I mentioned, like don't make them long. In fact, shorter is better. Don't mm -hmm. make them distracting. Don't make them overly convoluted. Um, like I think giving them some of those basic 
things to look at for a good video is I think worthwhile for, for new teachers to know because instructional videos now are so prevalent more mm-hmm. than they were like, you know, when I was going through teacher prep. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think also telling them the videos are not the be all end all the video. You're not going to find a perfect video that all of a sudden is going to teach everybody fractions or it's going to teach everybody, you know, solving equations. Um, so putting them in their proper context, which is that instructional videos are one tool in the math ed repertoire, but they're really not the strongest tool. And they, they have the risk of people putting too much value on the video thinking, oh yeah, if people would just watch this, they would get it. And it's like, no, it's still going to really matter what the learning opportunities you, a, t- a real teacher, a professional teacher does with the students mm-hmm. like live, it's still going to matter. I think a lot more. Um, so that's a couple of things I would mention to it. I also think um, new teachers could kind of have some creativity and I think they could maybe help us think outside the box of beyond the typical way of using videos. So typical way is you sign the video, students watch it, then they come to class and maybe they do some practice. Um, but it, but our team is was kind of wishing that people had a little bit more creativity. Like you could have the video not present a, a topic or present a definition and a worked example. You could have a video that just spurs a problem and then you could come together and dig into the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we also thought you could have the video after the lesson not before, like you could actually try something with students and they they get their hands dirty. They kind of work on it a bit. And then the video is actually a recap that sort of synthesizes or formalizes the idea afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like the new teachers might be more comfortable with video editing and sort of using their phones to kind of make little shorts and stuff. Um, I think of Teddy Chow and he's like digital math storytelling. Yeah. Like, I feel like that could also be incorporated where it's like, all right, let's actually have the students ideas. Then the students put them into a video as a way to kind of encapsulate their own learning rather than the teacher hitting them with a video for each topic. So I feel like the, the new generation might really wow us with some very cool ways of using videos in uh, a variety of ways. Yeah. One, one of those uh, reminds me of a, a talk I heard you give about inciting incidents um, for, for math problems. And so um, I, I guess that goes, but in my next question, what resources uh, would you recommend for people that are interested in, in learning more about this sort of thing? Yeah, well, um, Zandra and I and, and Ruby Ellis and JP Han and others, um, I mean, we, we've been pretty productive with that math, uh, flipped math study. So if you go to flippedmathstudy.net, um, you'll be able to find presentations we've done and then a lot of articles. We have a whole set of articles. I think we've probably published eight or 10 um, different articles from the flip math study. Some of them are about the videos. Some of them are about using class time, trying to spur collaboration. Some of them are research articles that are about like, why did the teachers flip? Um, and then how did the teachers use the videos in relation to their textbook? They may they kind of use their video to replace the textbook. Actually, once they had a set of videos that became the textbook mm. instead of whatever textbook they had before. Um, so there's a whole set of things. Um, yeah, that and Zandra and I are still thinking about it. We're actually still trying to publish a couple more articles that report on the student learning outcomes. That's the last piece to the puzzle, because mm-hmm. we did have measures of procedural learning, conceptual learning. And those are the ones we haven't published yet, but they're, well, they're out in some conferences. We've we've shared them at some conferences, and then uh, we're trying to get those out as well. Sam, That's- would you see this work as like, you talked about incremental changes, like yeah. possibly like moving to like, hey, let's take what you're doing. Let's let's flip it. Like, is that like one of those like maybe incremental changes that you're talking about before? Yeah, that's a good question. So and Zandra and I are 
we work together on Flipped, and then now we're also working together on Incremental PD with Amber Candela and Paul Juan Savage. But it's a good question. The thing about flipping is flipping doesn't have to be a transformative revolutionary change for the teacher. If the teacher is very comfortable with, I've got some definitions, I know how I like to explain them, I have some worked examples, and then I have some practice problems or exercises that come after. Like if the teacher is very confident and, and comfortable in that sort of zone, then flipping can still work in that zone. You could still be like, all right, go ahead and take your definition, your worked examples, put those on a video. That will free up some class time. And now you might be able to nudge them a little bit on, let's do a little bit something more with the class time. Uh, maybe now you have the students do this together before you know you you finish the class, or maybe you give them more time to work, and that is going to be a little bit more beneficial than just using most of the class time to talk at them. So I yeah I do think there's a way in which flipping can start to make some room for learning improvements and some kind of instructional improvements, but it's not this big transformational shift of you need a whole new curriculum, you need a whole new way that you have as a role of the teacher is you're going to be completely different. You're going to be a facilitator, you know, and, and sometimes those transformations are uh, not taken up easily by the teacher. But flipping, I think, could in some ways. Although, again, I do think there's always this danger that flipping people or administrators or parents will think like the instructional video is doing all the work. It's like, no, actually, the teacher is still the one that's, that's doing the work with the students. Mm -hmm. uh, and I should put this caveat in, too, that Zandra and I this whole flipped math study, it was not because we were proponents of flipping. It was because we wanted to understand the phenomenon of flipping better. Okay. And so we have, it turns out there are some benefits, but we, we, we didn't go into it because we wanted to push flipping. Although, I mean, we will try to talk honestly about some of the drawbacks and then some of the benefits that can happen mm -hmm. from it. That's really cool, Sam. Do you have anything else to promote or share with us? Well, in terms of the incremental professional development or just this this approach of recognizing what teachers are already doing and just making very modest um, suggestions that they can take or leave, uh, I'll just mention that we do have a, an NSF grant that we're working on, uh, me and Zandra, Amber Candela, Paul Juan Savage, and some grad students. It's called Practice Driven Professional Development. Uh, we have a website that we've started, although we, we need to expand it more, but it's practicedrivenpd.com. And we are trying to empirically investigate whether teachers take up some of these small suggestions and whether they sort of respond well to that kind of PD rather than the transformational revolutionary kind of PD. Um, so that's one thing I can just mention. We've talked about it quite a bit throughout this conversation. Uh, the other thing I'll just promote is that at Mizzou, we are uh, looking for more math educators. So our doctoral program is seeking applicants. Um, so we usually review in November and December for people who can start. We have full-time funded tuition waiver, um, uh, great community here. Dusty is a, yeah. a wonderful product of our doctoral program. Can I do one more? Yeah. Sam, you're, you got, you got a book, your, your children's book. Come on now. Let's, I have a children's book, but it's not too on. mathy. Although I, I did hey. structure the whole book like a proof. It proves That's, that every letter, awesome. letter is important. Yeah. Missing letters, an alphabet book. I, I just, I, I was so excited when I saw that. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm yeah. I mean, you know, like you, you're talking about like, hey, cut, let's the work day eight to five and then, you know, leave room for, for other things, but with family or hobbies or writing a children's book, like fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you want to read an alphabet book with your kids, that is an alphabet book, but with a mathematician's sensibility of let's <laughs> let's play with the words and let's kind of like see what we can mess up with the words. Uh, missing letters is there for you. I think it's good for especially ages like four to six. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes as well. It, Absolutely. It's a, it's a fun read. Oh, cool. um, Thanks, guys. I didn't know you. I didn't know that was going to come up, but I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> we're well, fans. We're fans, Sam. Come on. That's right. I, I didn't bring up uh, DC uh, comics because I, I oh. as much as I like comics, I find myself gravitating toward Marvel. I don't want to start a fight. I'm not that kind of person. Um, DC is kind of winding down this year, so it's okay that it didn't come up. It's okay. It's gonna, it'll it'll wind back up in the future. Good, good. <laughs> and and Sam, in honor of you, um, I one of the things I like about the Math Ed podcast is that last question. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, if you weren't in mathematics education as a career, what might you imagine yourself doing as an alternative career? Yeah. I've had different answers for this over the years. The the one that I would say right now is because this summer I went back up to my family farm. So I grew up on a farm in the Upper Peninsula and I have three brothers. We actually all went to the farm. We did some farm cleanup. We did some hay. We did square bales. We did round bales. We fought with equipment trying to get it working. <laughs> um, and it was actually kind of fun. So maybe my answer right now would be I would be trying to run a family farm mostly making hay, uh, and selling it and keeping the equipment running. Uh, if I did that though, I know enough about family farming to know that I would also need some side hustles. I'd, I'd need some other things to do to, to make some money. So I'd probably play piano at weddings or, you know, around, uh, to get little money for music gigs. And I might do some math tutoring or something like that to make a little bit of money, but, uh, I would give it a shot with, uh, maybe a, a hobby farm, family farm kind of thing. That sounds great. And maybe there'd be a, uh, a, a podcast along with that for, you know, uh, people that are farming and want to listen to podcasts. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of time sitting in the tractor, so you sure. might as well just, yeah. you know, listen to something about farming while you're going back and forth, back and forth. At a, at a high volume so you can yeah. hear it yep. over the tractor. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Sam. This has been a really uh, fun conversation. I'm excited to share it with the rest of the community. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to y'all for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we hope that you're able to take action on something you just heard and interact with other math teacher educators. Also, did you know that AMTE has another podcast? The Mathematics Teacher Educator Podcast accompanies the latest edition of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal and has authors discuss the work they have submitted for publication to the journal. Uh, find a link to the MTE podcast in the show notes for this episode.